Kings. I'm so glad that you were able to make it to part two of Groundskeepers. If you haven't heard part one yet, please feel free to check it out. There, we discuss the different types of ground and their impacts on our lives. Today, we pick up where we left off as we'll finally delve into good ground. Good ground. The impact of becoming good ground. It can be beneficial both corporately and individually. I remember the corporate part of this lesson being shared with me early in my walk with God. The lesson of our responsibility as a congregation when we went to church on Sundays. Until then, I primarily seen church as a place you, you just go to just to receive from God through the pastor. When really, his words weren't just to serve as inspiration, but also confirmation. A confirmation and supplementation of what God is already bringing to your attention between the Sundays. Every joint supplies. I remember my minister telling me. Every joint supplies. All to say that when we come to church, we come not just to receive, but to give. Not just the praise and worship singers, not just the pastor, not just the tithes, not just the offering. But when we are seeking and filling ourselves up in Christ between the Sundays, praying for people in the upcoming service between the Sundays, this creates a greater supply for God to use. This creates the type of good ground in a corporate setting. And though that may not be a common understanding of good ground, let's look into a few other examples that we can find in God's word. Consider Matthew 7 verses 24 through 27 and the parable of the two houses that were built. One on sand and the other on, quote, good ground, which in this case is a firm foundation, a rock. The house on the firmer foundation can take the storm and was the house that was intact. The house built on sand, however, had an opposite fate. Now, what's interesting here is that nowhere in this parable did God's word mention anything about the materials. And if you've skimmed through the Old Testament, you know that he doesn't mind mentioning materials. But he doesn't here. Not because they're not important, but perhaps because the foundation is that much more important. There are blessings that we want in life, like a house. And we tend to focus on the house while God focuses on the ground. In part, I believe, because he knows that no matter the quality of the materials or how beautiful the house, the storm is coming. And without a proper foundation, all that was built can be lost. I imagine that God's Zillow looks totally different than ours. We scroll through, looking at houses, for things like curb appeal, 
the number of bathrooms and bedrooms. Picturing our lives in that space. While he, God, he's looking at the ground for things like humility, faithfulness, obedience, and love. And I bet he's picturing the effect of his life in that space. I wonder if God and us had the same Zillow, would we bookmark the same properties? Now let's take a look at another example. The story of Jesus and the adulterous woman. It's interesting looking through these scriptures in John 8 that the Pharisees had gathered around to stone an adulterous woman. And Jesus, instead of using just his voice, decided to use the ground by writing on it. Now we tend to focus so much on what Jesus may have written in the ground that we tend to overlook the fact that the ground itself had to be in a condition to be written on. That was good ground. Now, if you've already listened to part one of this message, right now you're probably thinking, now wait, Rashad. In one example, you talk about the type of good ground that's good for seed. In another, you talk about building a house on a rock and how that's the good ground. And now you give an example about another type of good ground entirely. The one that Jesus needs to write on. So what is good ground? And that's a good question. What is good ground? Now, from my observation, good ground is ground that is ready to receive no matter how God decides to give. So God, whether you want to plant something in me, build something on me, or even write in me, I'm willing. I'm ready. Us wanting to receive and be used by God should correlate with how we cultivate or prepare our ground. Let's look at some examples of good ground. So when we think about all the fruit that came out of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they were willing to walk in the fiery furnace, that it's good ground. Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Good ground. Job going through all that he went through and saying, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Good ground. So how do we become good ground? Well, let's first note that good ground was not always necessarily good. Good ground must often be prepared to be so. In the natural, this could involve removing stones, thorns, breaking up the ground, etc. For us, it may mean repentance, removing pride in exchange for humility, establishing a true and consistent life of prayer. Discovering and meditating on the word that God has for you in this season of your life and investing in it between the Sundays. 
It could often mean therapy. Yes, therapy. One may not know what all is needed until we begin to allow our ground to be broken. I think it's pretty interesting that in the King James Version, seed was described as going into good ground. The ground's level of reception of the seed was also the level of protection for the seed. And let's be real. All this sounds like a lot. And sometimes God's expectations can seem, at least to me, overwhelming. I recall just kind of getting all this stuff in my mind. It's just floating around and asking God one day, how am I supposed to do all this stuff? What he would share with me would lead me to how he would teach me to develop good ground. I remember the scripture Joshua 1 and 8, but I remember it for different reasons than why he brought me to it. So Joshua 1 and 8, it says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, normally when reading this scripture, my focus would be on the prosperous and having good success part. But the Holy Spirit had me first focused in on meditating on his word. And secondly, why? That I may observe to do. Oh, Okay, God, meditation will help me to do. Now, I used to think that meditation was some deep, deep ritualistic experience like it's portrayed on TV. Meditation, however, can also simply mean to think deeply or carefully about something. And that gave me some encouragement. From there, I started taking a few minutes just here and there throughout my day to meditate, to think on things God was trying to share with me through scripture, etc. I'd sometimes even set alarms on my phone to vibrate and remind me to meditate. Eventually, I would take those few minutes to quietly pray, praise, and even worship. The things that I remember that my grandmother used to do for growing up, I just didn't understand. And meditating seemed to give God room to unpack the meaning of his teachings in ways that showed itself in my life. It's like I could hear God better. His existence was more tangible, more real. Knowing that I was going to be spending time with him later on at night also motivated adjustments in my conduct and thought life. But yes, so I started meditating. And I started meditating on scriptures about meditation. And while going over Joshua 1 and 8, I also began to notice something else about meditation. In this scripture, he says to do it day and night. Now, this seemed a little familiar from other scriptures that I've read on meditation like Psalms 1 and 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, 
and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Also Psalm 63 verses 1 and verse 6. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsts for thee, my flesh longs for thee in the dry and thirsty land where no water is. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Now, I'm not trying to be dogmatic about this and saying that this is how everybody has to do it. Not at all. But I did sense a pattern that I felt led for me, myself, to follow. And this helps me cultivate good ground in my life to this day. This also became the bookends of my day, with additional meditations sprinkled between. So at one end, it's, I used to call it prayer time, and I guess it is, um, but it's kind of whatever God wants to do in that time. It's God time. And on the other end, at night, it's God time as well. Sometimes for a few minutes, and sometimes much longer. I decided not to leave that up to me, but to leave that up to him. But please, don't get me wrong. It wasn't always happily ever after. I still had problems with consistency. Sometimes I would slack on it and allow life, fatigue, and now with kids and etc. to affect my consistency. And when I did, there was no condemnation, but I could always tell the difference. I would call this the denial part of my day. Scriptures say that we must deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily, and follow him. This, to me, was part of that. But my consistency with seeking him day and night would still need work. God helped me with this through a vision, for lack of a better word. He had me visualize him, God himself, preparing himself to meet me, how we prepare ourselves to meet someone we're eager to see. I see him being excited about our appointment, making sure that everything is in order, making sure that he brings what he has for me to our meeting. He shows up at our meeting place, anticipating my arrival and me not showing up. Now, how does that make him feel? My Lord, my Savior, my King, my friend. The one who's been there for me the most. How can I not be there when he has always been there for me? Now, there's no condemnation, but just the feeling of that moment has increased my consistency abundantly. Now, I told you all of that for a reason. It kind of reminds me of when I was in college playing basketball. Now, I wasn't on the basketball team. I wasn't that good. But the gym was right next to my dorm. And um, I remember a guy there who could shoot very well. And he would shoot. 
and just shoot, like step across half court and just shoot. It was amazing. Couldn't dribble as well and anything like that. Wasn't a great passer. Matter of fact, he was just all about shooting. And I remember asking him one day, I said, you shoot really well. Can you teach me how to do that? What did it take for you to get to that place? And he invited me to a, uh, a practice of his. It was just him going to the gym and it was at night. And so get there at nighttime, turn on the gym lights. I was like, okay, where are we about to do? He said, well, I take, I first, I make 800 shots a day, you know? I, so I got to make my 800 shots. I said, 800 shots a day. Oh my gosh, that's a lot of shots. And so we went through the practice and he hit his and I tried to hit mine. And we did this time and time again for a little while. And over time, I got better and better and better. And better in ways that I wouldn't have gotten by myself because I didn't know, I didn't have the point of reference of what it took to get to that place. I'm not saying I'm a great anything that we're talking about. But what I am saying is that I've learned to uh, gain success in certain areas. I've learned to grow in certain areas. And if me sharing some of the details, some of the practical details of what I did can help you take it and customize it for yourself, maybe not 800 shots, but maybe it's something else, um, then I think that that makes it all the worthwhile. Another thing I wanted us to get out of this example is the importance of repetition. Now us now being meditators, perhaps that would change the way that we go about doing certain things. Maybe now it'll make more sense for us to take notes when we're listening to sermons. To make sure that we get the DVD tape or the stream of some of these sermons and things that we're hearing from God, allowing God to further unpack the seed, to unpack the things that he's putting into us through these words. I know for me, myself, just considering how I was in school, I couldn't gain everything that I needed to gain from someone just telling me it from the front of a classroom. And even if I did have some takeaways, it wasn't really life-changing because I couldn't remember or I didn't revisit the things that were being taught. I didn't allow it to grow in me. In the marketing world, they understand this, the effect of repetition on human behavior. Some refer to it as the marketer's rule of seven, where they feel like they have to show you an advertisement seven times before we'll move most people to action. Now that number slides a little bit here and there from study to study. But the point of it is, is that there is a sweet spot to where we can actually download information and it start to show in our lives. An interesting example of this is the definition of insanity. Now, right now, as of this recording, it's 2021. But a couple of years prior, the past couple of years, it's become a very, very popular statement to where people will say, if you ask them what the definition of insanity is, they'll say it's doing the same thing over and over 
and expecting different results. Now, what's interesting about that is that that person and you both know that if you go to a dictionary and you look at the definition of insanity, it doesn't say that. But that's immediately their response. Part of the reason is because of the repetition. People, they say it from pulpits. You hear it on TV. You hear people in doctor's coats say it. You hear people in offices say it. You hear people in the streets say it. And on some level, even though we technically know it's not the truth, we accept it as right. In scripture, they tell us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It also tells us to be careful what we hear. And yes, it even tells us to meditate day and night. So doing things more than once is not just psychological, but it's scriptural. Repetition is tending to the seed. And without getting too far into this, it's also improving the quality of the ground. So even when you consider Matthew 17, verse 29, where it talks about faith being the size of a mustard seed, what helps make something so small like a mustard seed become so effective is not just the seed itself, but it's also in the type of ground that you put it in. Because, let's face it, you can put that seed, that faith, in many other things like our own ability, our worldly wisdom, and not get nearly the same result in comparison as to placing that seed, that faith, in God. God is the ultimate good ground. And so in closing, if God has spoken anything to you, in these episodes, just know that the enemy is already trying to take it away. Now that we're more aware of the seed and good ground, we can be more protective of it. Because good ground has a multiplying effect, some 30, 60, and even 100 fold. Guys, kings, good ground is dangerous. And to be so is our mission. Because when we are truly good ground, the enemy knows that he can't afford for God's word to even encounter us. Not even if it's the size of a mustard seed. Kings, I'm so glad you guys stuck it out with me on this one. Even though there's still more to unpack on a topic like this, we've established a good, firm foundation. I look forward to building on this foundation in our next episodes on the Counselor of Kings podcast.